That slide says it all, doesn't it? You can turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Hell, the lake of fire, Hades. What comes to your mind when you hear those words? A while back, I had somebody give me a little Gary Larson cartoon that showed a bunch of people in hell and they were kind of milling around. Of course, there was the devil there with his pitchfork and, um, you know, you could see people, lots of people, shadows in the background. And these two men were walking up uh, to the coffee machine and one was sipping on some coffee and commented, they thought of everything here, even the coffee's cold. And, you know, we laugh at that and the world often makes fun of hell and it has become a curse word and a filler word and a word that is an adjective to describe bad days. And to some, it's a place where axe murders and serial killers go, but not the average good person. Certainly, they say to themselves, if I've been better than the average criminal, uh, I'm going to heaven, not hell. Others, not loving God, have convinced themselves that when they die, they will be able to bear up under hell's torments. Actually, they'll be glad to be there because they can party with their buddies. And so for the next few weeks, I want to oppress upon you the reality and terrors of hell. I'm not going to argue for the existence of hell. Or try to convince you that hell is eternal conscious torment. I've done that in other places. You can listen to the Sermon on the Wrath of God from the Attributes of God series in Psalm 145 if you want that. Um, What I want to do is I want to show you what hell is all about. The Bible is unmistakably clear that there is a hell and it's as real as a place as heaven It is a place of unimaginable torment for those who die not having been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who go there never escape because the Bible says the smoke of their torment goes up day and night forever and ever. And as I mentioned last week, there are a lot of preachers who are not preaching on hell these days. Some teach that hell doesn't even exist. Others teach that, well, hell exists, but it's really just being burned up. And when you die, you are burned up forever. And so hell is not even a deterrent. It's not even a scary place because if you hate God in this life, good. I don't have to go to heaven and be with him. I can be burned up. So this morning, though, I want to argue why we should preach and teach on hell and examine some of the biblical synonyms for hell and address some of the excuses people give for not wanting to hear about hell and explain why those excuses are false. This will kind of clear the way for next week. When I hope to take you on a little mental trip to hell. I told one of the elders that and they said, I hope you're going to bring us back. (laughs) So look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 12 verses 4 through 9, which is our text. 
and follow along as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 9. Jesus speaking, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Twice in this text, Jesus refers to hell. Once directly, when he says, fear him who is able to cast both the body and soul into hell. And then once indirectly, when he speaks of those who deny God in this life being denied before the angels of God. That is, they are denied and cast into hell. Now, from this text, I started to point out to you four God-given incentives for not fearing men who might persecute you because of your faith and why we should fear God, who is not only able to kill us, and we learn that he is ultimately responsible for everyone's death, but that he is able to cast you into hell. We have looked at the first two incentives. Don't be afraid of men to die at the hands of men because, you know, after that, after they've killed you, what else can they do? But do be afraid, secondly, to die at the hand of God because he is not only to be feared. He is not only the great king. He not only has authority, but he has authority to cast you into hell. We learned that when the text says in verse 5, fear the one, and when it says, yes, I tell you, fear him, the one, and him is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, which is pretty amazing because Jesus is also the Savior. But Jesus is also the executioner. He is both Savior and executioner. Jesus right now is speaking to His disciples and this large group of people and this group of religious leaders saying, you need to fear me because I'm the one who cast people into hell. Jesus is judge. Jesus is executioner. Those Jesus cast into hell include wicked people. Serial killers, but it also includes some very moral people, very religious people, church-going people who call themselves Christians. Jesus speaks of this in the end of Matthew 7, where he says, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then they list the good deeds they do. They know who Jesus is. They call him Lord. They're in the church. They're doing good works. And Jesus then says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and into hell they go. A scary thought. So it's not just the axe murders and serial killers that Jesus casts into hell, but some very religious professing Christians. Because of this, we are to fear him, not men. And last week, we were barely able to examine the definition of hell in our text. When he says, fear the one who is able to cast both body and soul into hell, we stopped and looked at that word. The Greek word is Gehenna. Uh, The New Testament has multiple synonyms for hell, as we will find out later. And 
When Jesus uses this term, he's speaking of um, this place, uh, this literal place where sinners are tormented for eternity. But it came from a place just south of the ridge that Jerusalem was built on, the valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament, it is sometimes called Topheth. It is a place where during Israel's apostasy, they built this altar to the false god Moloch, and then they sacrificed their children to that god. When Josiah became king, he tore down the altar. And then, since it was an accursed place, no one would build a house there, so they decided to turn it into the city dump right outside the city. And then people would take their garbage, their refuse, the hides and guts of animals and executed criminals and all their trash, and they would burn it there in the valley of Hinnom. Hence it was Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, where this smoke and stench was continually coming and arising because the fires were always burning because of the garbage that was continually brought there. So it became a synonym for hell. So that's pretty much where we got last week. Now I want to go into this uh, doctrine of hell a little bit more. And so this morning, I want to give you three categories of truth about the doctrine of hell. One, biblical reasons for studying the doctrine of hell. Two, excuses exposed and refuted for not wanting to study about hell. And three, biblical synonyms for hell. This will then lay the groundwork for the scarier sermon next week. But keep in mind that this sermon is just a continuation of our discussion on why we need to fear God, that there is a hell and we want to find out more about what that is like. So our first point is biblical reasons for studying the doctrine of hell. Why preach on hell if most people don't want to hear about it? I mean, you think, you know, it seems kind of negative and gruesome. And why would you even go there? Well, the fact is, most preachers don't go there. They don't want to talk about it. Fact is, most people don't want to hear about hell either. So everybody's happy. Many preachers rarely mention hell, and if they do mention hell, it is mentioned in very subdued terms and indirect ways. So that it doesn't offend anybody or drive anybody away. Most preachers want to be well-liked, and if they preach on hell, people might leave their church. They might lose their ratings. Preachers like this are the worst of enemies because they fail to tell people the full extent of the danger they are in. They fail to preach the true Jesus, for they presented Jesus who isn't really Jesus. They stripped Jesus of half of his attributes. He is not the Jesus of the Bible, but a Jesus who is only merciful, only gracious, only forgiving, only loving, which is really no Jesus at all. Because the real Jesus, the one who can save you, the one who can cast you into hell, is a just Jesus, a holy Jesus, a wrathful Jesus, the one who casts sinners in hell, the judge of the living and the dead. Now I think we would all agree that the things the Bible emphasizes more should be preached on more. I mean, don't you think that's fair? If something is mentioned, let's say, 50 times, and something is mentioned two times, what should we preach on more? 
Well, the thing mentioned 50 times. I mean, especially for preaching through books and we just come to the subject matter, we're going to have more subject matter on the thing mentioned 50 times than things mentioned twice. Now, I did a little search on this because a lot of times people come up and they say, you know, um, we don't really hear a lot of preaching on the love of God. You know, can't you preach more sermons on the love of God? Well, I just want you to know I love preaching on the love of God. Uh, I think it's great. But some people kind of like, well, can't you just like get it in there somehow? Well, I talk about God's love. I preach the gospel most every week, which is God's greatest demonstration of love. I decided to do a little search. So I, I got out my computer, which makes this rather easy. Got out my Bible software and I just looked up every occurrence of love in the gospels. There was 90 occurrences, 90 occurrences of the word love. 19 of those occurrences are used in exhorting us to love our neighbors or enemies. 13 occurrences are directed at us loving Jesus. You know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments type of thing. 10 occurrences are directed at us loving God. 17 occurrences are used to describe Jesus's or God's love for people. 17 occurrences. The other 30 occurrences or so are used uh, speaking of men who love sin, who love darkness, who love the chief seats um, and places of honor, the son loving the father, the father loving the son and other things like that. But out of the 17 occurrences in the Gospels of Jesus or God loving people, five occurrences are used by John describing himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Three more are used of Jesus' describing his love for the 12 disciples, as in um, the high priestly prayer where he speaks of his love for them. Two occurrences are used of Jesus describing Lazarus, his love for Lazarus right before he raised him for the dead, and one occurrence of Lazarus' sister Martha. This leaves six general references to God loving everyone or large groups of people like the nation of Israel. Maybe like you would have in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's one of the six. Now, People wonder, why don't you preach more on love? Preach on the love of God. I find it interesting that there is more preaching today on the love of God than ever before in the history of the world, and people want more. But when you look in the scriptures, I thought, okay, I'm going to look uh, at what, what is there in the Gospels about hell and judgment. 16 references to Jesus, God, or the saints in glory judging unrepentant sinners. That's almost three times as many as the reference of love, but that's not all. 20 occurrences of judgment to come or the day of judgment. Eight more occurrences of people perishing. Two references to hell. Ten references to fire, just fire. That will consume the adversary as judgment. Six references to unquenchable fire. 
Two references to a furnace of fire, two references to eternal fire, four references to Hades, which is a synonym for hell, three references of outer darkness, and five references of the wrath of God. This is 78 references, direct references of hell and judgment, which is 13 times more references than the love of God. So you ask, why should we preach More on the love of God when there is a 13 times greater emphasis in the Gospels on God's judgment and hell. It would mean that any faithful preacher preaching through the Gospels, if they preached in proportion, would preach 13 sermons on hell to one on the love of God. Which means I have been seriously neglectful. I need to repent. Yeah, somebody said. <laughs> and the point I am making is, is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus emphasized hell and judgment a lot because it is an extremely important doctrine. And it is, isn't it amazing that it is the one doctrine that just has people aren't preaching anymore. What does it tell you about the preacher who can supposedly preach through the Gospels and never mention hell, judgment, sin, or wrath? What does it tell you about that man? What does it tell you about those who sit in churches all over the world who don't want to hear about hell? What does it tell you about them? They don't want to hear the truth. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I just want to show you this. This just happens to be my favorite portion of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is almost gone. He's on the verge of being martyred for the faith. He writes to Timothy one last letter. This is his last letter that we have preserved for us in the New Testament. And Paul gives all preachers here a very strong exhortation. I think it's the strongest in all the New Testament. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Let's stop there. Notice the reasons Paul includes here. One, you preach every time you preach in God's presence. Two, you preach in Christ's presence specifically. Three, you preach in Christ's presence who is the judge of the living and the dead. That means you. And four, you preach knowing Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That is a pretty strong charge. That's why Paul says, I solemnly charge you. So what are preachers to do? Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So we are to always be preaching the word, which means if we preach through the Bible, we're going to preach 13 sermons on hell and judgment to one sermon on love. Why though? Why? Verse 3, for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear preaching and teaching about hell, for instance. 
But wanting to have their ears tickled, in other words, wanting to have preachers make them feel good, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, literally their own lusts. People will want preachers that feed their lust and make them feel good. Ear-tickling, lust-gratifying preachers. What are the consequences? They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Myths like Jesus is only loving. Jesus is only merciful and forgiving and compassionate. But Jesus is not a judge. Jesus would never cast anybody to hell. Hell is a place where you get burn up. Hell is not conscious torment. These are Lies, myths, which have grave consequences and are being preached all over the world. The doctrine of hell must be preached. And although it's not popular because we live in the times that Paul speaks of there in the text, men wanting to have their ears tickled, wanting to hear preaching according to their own lust, yet the truth must still be proclaimed, hence the text. Secondly, What are some excuses uh, that people give for not wanting to hear about hell? And how would we answer those? How would we refute those? Why is it that people don't want to hear about hell and eternal judgment? Well, you say, well, obviously, it's kind of a downer subject, actually. I mean, the slide is enough. Um, You know, why is it in an age where there's more preaching on the love of God than ever before, Do people want more? Why do they just want to kind of not hear about the doctrine of hell? Well, I came up with seven reasons, which I think are common, though certainly not comprehensive. But I think it'll give us a good understanding and just kind of help us. You know, what I'm doing right now, I'm just going to tell you, is I'm trying to get you to lower your guard so that next week I can run you through. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm just trying to get you to get all these excuses and all these reasons for why I shouldn't be hearing this and just set all those down so you can just take it next week. Hold still while I hit you. Okay, why don't people want to hear preaching on hell? One, because they have placed their faith in a false Jesus. They believe in a Jesus who is only love and compassionate and merciful and gracious. Their Jesus would never cast anyone into hell. And this means their Jesus is a false Jesus, an idol, not the Jesus of the Bible, not certainly a Jesus who can save anyone. It means they have placed their faith in an imposter. And they themselves are headed for the very hell and eternal fire that they do not want to acknowledge. But the solution is not to feed their idolatrous view of a figure called Jesus who isn't the one who can save them, but is to pop their bubble and to let them know Jesus, yes, is a savior. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's kind, but he's also wrathful. He's also the judge of the living and the dead, and he's holy, and he casts sinners into hell to teach them both so that they can believe in the correct Jesus. Secondly, People don't want to hear teaching about hell because they have loved ones who have died and gone to hell. You know, when you love someone who maybe hated the Lord and died, 
never trusting in Christ, never following Christ, never believing in the Lord. You don't want to think of them as being in hell. That's kind of uncomfortable. You want to have good memories of them, pleasant memories of them. Instead of thinking them right now being in the flames of hell. And in one respect, that's understandable. I mean, we don't want to think the worst. But sometimes what's worst is true. And we need to think truthfully. Now think about this with me. Do you think the solution is to have the preacher not preach on hell so you can feel comfortable about your loved ones who have gone there to the peril of other people? Or do you think it's best to love other people enough that you want them to know the full extent of the danger they are in so that they flee from the wrath to come to Christ who alone can save them? I mean, don't you think that if we really love people, we would be like the rich man in Hades and Luke 16, where he's in the flames. He's he's being tormented and speaking to Abraham. He says, I beg you, father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. That would be the loving thing. That would be the loving thing. What is the profit in keeping the truth from others, which is a major motivation for them being saved and obeying the Lord? There is none. Third, people don't want to hear teaching about hell because they have loved ones who are dying and on their way to hell. You have loved ones, they may profess to be atheists or agnostics, or maybe they're involved in some cult. You don't want to think about them being on their way to hell, but they are. They are. Unless they believe in Jesus, they are. But again, what what are you really thinking of? Who are you thinking of? Well, you're thinking of your own comfort. You want to be comfortable, right? You want to be comfortable. You want to feel good. As they're perishing, you want to feel good about it. It's all about you. It's all about your feeling good. It's not about their welfare. When you love someone, you want them to know when they're in danger. And they are in danger. You want to feel the danger that they are in. I mean, what mother wouldn't want to know if her little toddler was playing in the street? You call up, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Smith. Um, do you want to know that your two-year-old's playing in the street? Ah! She runs out there to save the child. And do you think she's mad at you? No. She is so, so thankful. Thank you. But in our world, it seems to be that people don't want to know. They don't want to be reminded that their loved ones are in the street. And they would just prefer that we leave them there till they get run over. That is not love. That is selfishness. Four, people don't want to hear about preaching on hell because they are unsure of their own salvation. And afraid they might be going to hell themselves. Some people just 
are weak in faith and they're just, they're just not sure. I mean, I wonder if I'm saved. I wonder if I'm not saved. I mean, I think I understand the gospel and but I don't know if God's working in my life. I mean, I am coming to church, but you know, there's just this doubt and a sin in my life, but all Christians sin and I'm not quite sure, you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm saved or not. Let me just ask you this simple question. You know, you be the counselor. I be the counselee. I come to you. I sit in front of your big desk. Maybe I recline at the couch. And I say, I've got a dilemma, counselor. And this is it. What do you think I should do? Should I continue in doubt and seek only that teaching which will make me feel good in my doubt and lack of assurance of salvation? Or should I seek assurance of salvation so I can hear any message from the word of God and know for certain I'm going to heaven? Well, we all know the answer. The answer is get assurance. Not get teaching which can help me feel comfortable in my lack of assurance. Get to the place where you say, you know what? I know I'm going to heaven. The Bible says this. I believe. I see God changing my life. I know I'm going to heaven. That is the solution. Not, listen, I'm not sure. So make me feel good. I talked to my students at seminary when I teach the preaching class over there. This is last week. I told them, listen. You preach so hard against sin that two things happen. Drive people away or get them saved. Drive them away or make them pursue holiness. Don't let anybody feel comfortable in their sin before you. Because that is not loving. Five. Another reason why people don't want to hear about hell is because they know they're not saved and they're headed there. I There are some people who come to church. We've heard testimonies from people being baptized. that said, oh yeah, I was going to church. Oh yeah, I went to Christian school. Oh yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. Oh yeah, I knew the gospel. Oh yeah, I went to Awana. Oh, I knew all the verses, but I was living this dual life, man. I was living this duplicitous lifestyle where at church I'd be one thing and the rest of the week I'd be... The other thing, an unbeliever. And I knew in my heart I didn't know Christ. And some people who are like that, they don't want to hear about hell because it scares them. But as Thomas Watson asks, what good will it do us if we die and go to hell if those who are alive think we're in heaven? I mean, think about it. Is that a delusion or what? It's like, I just want to make sure that when I die and go to hell, people think I'm in heaven. Why? Why not go to heaven? The solution is not to continue to play the hypocrite deceiving others so that you can deceive them all the way to the grave. If you don't have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, if you've never received Christ as your Savior and been forgiven, then receive Christ and be forgiven and go to heaven. Be what God wants you to be, saved. Leave your sins and turn to Jesus in faith, and then you can praise God through every sermon on hell, knowing that you have been delivered from the wrath to come. Six, another reason people don't want to hear preaching on hell, because they don't want to think of Jesus as someone who would eternally punish those who reject him. You know, you hear him say things like this, well, my Jesus would never 
cast anybody into hell. Or a less uh, severe form of that is, well, my Jesus might punish people, sure, but never eternally. He could never do that. Well, you believe in the wrong Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, I would agree that the concept of eternal punishment is difficult to imagine. But I also agree that the concept of eternal life in heaven forever is hard to imagine. I have a hard time thinking I'm going to make it to 80. Maybe I won't. But what is the solution to that? What is the solution to that? You know, hell, eternal hell just makes Jesus seem severe and and cruel and, and unjust and... I don't know, it just doesn't seem like eternal punishment fits the crime. I mean, we only live for, you know, less than a century usually. And so how could you have eternal punishment for that many sins? Well, the solution is to find out from the word of God why there must be eternal punishment and why it says that. Not to edit the scriptures to make ourselves feel good. And the reason is, is God is not merely holy. He is infinitely holy. And we throw out this infinite word and it's kind of hard for us to grasp. You know, we can think of a line that goes from here all the way to the moon. That's pretty far. Or to the sun or to the outer reaches of our galaxy or through all of those galaxies and all through the numberless galaxies of the far reaches of the universe and on beyond that. That's just a little small digit when it compared to eternity and compared to infinity. And God is the infinitely holy God. He doesn't just require that we have average obedience. He wants us to be perfect. Why? Because he is perfect. He even tells us, be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. Do you know why he said that? So people would say, I'm not. And then you can say, well, then I'd save you. He wants us to be perfect. And we can either try and be perfect on our own or we can believe in Jesus and Jesus can make us perfect. I mean, what will it be? But perfection is what is required. Because God is perfect. And because God is perfect and his standards are perfect, his punishment and retribution against sin must be perfect. Every sin is an infinite offense to an infinite holy God. And so the punishment must be infinite. And this is why hell is eternal. You know, don't think of it. See, don't think of this life as the only thing. It's not like like people live in this life and they sin. And then if they end up in hell, they're cast into hell and they become perfect model citizens in hell for all eternity. No, in hell, they hate God just like they hated him on earth and they keep hating him and their hate for God in hell fuels their own punishment forever. Listen to this. Psalm 11, verses 6 and 7, speaking about our Lord. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord loves righteousness. He loves righteousness 
the upright will behold his face. Now, notice this. God is not only righteous, he loves righteous. So why would God punish people because of love? Think about that. God punishes because he loves. Now you think, well, doesn't he love sinners? Yes, he loves sinner, but he also loves his own righteousness. He loves his own righteousness so much that he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That is why Jesus was sent to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins so he could bear our sins and receive our punishment upon himself, knowing that we could not endure hell ourselves. So he bore the wrath of God so that we, through faith in him, could have the free gift of eternal life. God sentences people to eternal hell because of love, because he loves his righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches. This is why he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. And it's true that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's true that God is not willing that any should perish. But it is equally true that God must punish sin to the fullest extent. And since every sin has an infinite offense to an infinite holy God, to break one commandment is to break them all. To break one commandment a lot of times is to break all of them a lot of times. And it adds up infinitely. Seven, people don't want to hear about hell because thoughts of hell take away the joy and pleasure of sinning. This is the most common reason in the world today. The myriads of people on earth don't want to hear about hell because, listen, you know, I'm trying to, you know, enjoy my immoral relationship with my girlfriend and hell really puts a damper on that. I mean, I'm trying to indulge in my favorite sinful pleasure. And if I think of myself burning in hell, it just kind of takes the edge off the pleasure. So please do not mention hell. Do not preach hell at me. Do not warn me of hell because it really puts a damper on my sinful lifestyle. You know, this is the one reason why evolution, the theory of evolution continues to be taught. This is it. That has nothing to do with the scientific facts. I mean, hello, you take nothing. Out of nothing comes everything. But there's no intelligence. After everything shows up in a big bang that came from nowhere, chance, which is not intelligent, which is nothing, doesn't even exist, chance then forms life out of nothing. And that life, which is then engineered down to the atomic level, begins to evolve without any intelligence, without any help. And things do everything they did before and something else better until we get to where we are. Products of random chance, created by chance, spontaneous generation out of nothing. I mean, that's pretty idiotic. I mean, and there are men with PhDs and doctor degrees all over the world who believe that definitively. You know why? It's not because it's a great theory. It's just the best one they got. It's the best one they have. That allows them to reject the concept of God. Because if you got a God 
then you got a heaven and a hell. And if there's hell, it makes sinning uncomfortable. And so the best thing to do is to believe the lie because you love sin more than God. And that's why evolution prospers. Because people don't want to believe there is a God who judges the living and the dead. They have bought the lie, many of them, that if they just verbally profess, yeah, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, that they get to go to heaven. No, no, no. The demons believe in God and Jesus. The demons were there. They saw the gospel played out. But they're not going to heaven. Just agreeing with facts doesn't save you. You must be born again, as Jesus said. We just need to take the advice that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord. And he will have compassion unto our God for he will abundantly pardon. No God-honoring preacher who loves you would ever let you feel comfortable in your sin. Ever. Robert Murray McShane, once minister of St. Peter's Church, Dundee, Scotland, preached a sermon on December 4th, 1842, entitled God's Rectitude and Future Punishment. In the sermon, he addresses those who either don't want to hear about hell or deny that hell exists. And McShane writes this quote. There are many among you. They do not believe that there is a hell, though you read of it in the Bible and are told about it. You still uh, still you always offer many excuses to your conscience. Perhaps there is not such a place after all. Perhaps it is just a bit of priestcraft gotten up to frighten people with. I believe that many among you think that many of you will die thinking that. But oh, the moment that you let go the last friend's hand that is grasping yours, that moment, sinner, when you find your soul is in the presence of God, and when you find out for the first time that you have God to do with, that moment you will find out that there is an eternal hell, end quote. Hell is real. Hell is waiting for all those who don't know Christ. It is inescapable. No one can bear up under it. God loves righteousness. Therefore, upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire, brimstone, and burning wind. And who is this God? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Third, what are some synonyms for hell? When you start looking at synonyms for hell, it really begins to open your eyes to the vast amount of information in the scripture on this subject. When you look in the Bible, you will find... References to hell and inferences to hell all over the place. Start in the Old Testament, Sheol. Sheol is a general term used to describe the place of the dead. So in the Old Testament, a lot of times Sheol, sometimes translated the grave or the netherworld. Sometimes uh, this word is just used to describe the place where everybody goes. When you die, you go to the grave. You know, you go to the next life or whatever. It is Sheol, the place of the dead. So that is a general reference. But sometimes Sheol is used in a more specific way because within Sheol, there are different locations. And one of those locations is hell. For instance, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, we read, For a fire is kindled in my anger. 
and burns to the lowest part of Sheol. Here, Sheol is described as this place that is burning fire from God. In Isaiah 4.15, Sheol is metaphorically used to describe this monster that swallows the wicked. Isaiah writes, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor and her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. The whole idea is hell is like this huge monster with this gaping mouth just swallowing up the wicked. Sheol, before Christ's ascension, is where both believers and non-believers went. One place was a place of safety and ease, Abraham's bosom. The other place is a place of fiery torment. This place of fiery torment also has a synonym in the Old Testament called Abaddon, a synonym for Sheol. In the New Testament, Abaddon is the name of a demon, the king of demons, also called Apollyon, who is king of the abyss, according to Revelation 9-11. So now we have the term abyss. So we have Sheol, Abaddon, the abyss, which is also referred to as the bottomless pit in Revelation 9-1. All of these places are synonyms for hell. But specifically, get this in your mind, you have this overarching place called Sheol, and within it, there is this these two locations, this place called Abraham's bosom and this other place called hell. But within hell, there is a special holding place, so there's two parts within hell, and one of them is this place where Demons are, because in Revelation 9, Apollyon is there to release these demons who have been incarcerated in the abyss or bottomless pit as a form of judgment upon the earth. It is where the demons feared to go. In the, in the story of the Gerizim demoniac, let me remind you of it. Luke chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, seeing Jesus, he cried out, that is this demon-possessed man, and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? God, I beg you, do not torment me. He was fearful that Jesus was going to cast him into the abyss. And that's what Luke goes on to say in verse 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. That is this special prison for extra wicked demons. Some demons, again, are temporary released from there, according to Revelation 9, verses 1 through 11, as a judgment This is where Satan and his demons are bound during his thousand-year reign, the millennium reign on earth, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. He is bound there for a thousand years. So it's kind of like jail for demons, extra wicked demons. And it has a synonym, another synonym, which is called Tartarus. Tartarus was a place in Greek mythology where the wicked were punished. If you've read any Greek mythology, um, they were then cast into Tartarus. That's where they suffered. But it, this word Tartarus is used once in the New Testament in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, to describe this special prison of extra wicked demons in, contained in hell. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word hell there is a translation of the word Tartarus, and committed them to Pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So we know that Tartarus, the bottomless pit, the abyss, 
Abaddon are all synonyms for that special place in hell where demons are incarcerated until the judgment of the great day. Gehenna, we already talked about that, or Topheth in the Old Testament, uh, the place where um, Moloch idol was erected, destroyed, and turned into the city dump where it burned continually outside the city. We won't go into that anymore. Hades is another word that was borrowed from Greek mythology. It was where Pluto, the god of the lower regions, punished men. In the New Testament, Hades is kind of the equivalent of Sheol. Sometimes it refers to everybody just going into Hades, the place of the dead. But other times it references that specific place of fiery torment. Within Hades, there is this place called Abraham's bosom. If you remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom. This is before Christ's ascension. Then he looks over Uh, The rich man looks over and he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, but there is this great chasm that separates the two areas so that no one can cross. The rich man, of course, is in agony in the flames. He's begging to have somebody just put a drop of water on his tongue. He begs to have Lazarus raised from the dead to warn his brothers. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he emptied out the Abraham's bosom portion of Sheol or Hades. So now Hades is only the place of either judgment for unbelievers or incarceration for extra wicked demons. You also look in the New Testament and there's many many uses of fire as synonyms for hell, um, unquenchable fire, furnace of fire, eternal fire, everlasting fire, and finally the great lake of fire, which we know from Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 that it was a place specifically prepared for the judgment of Satan and his demons, but is where everyone will be cast into, according to Revelation 20 verse 13, everybody who who doesn't believe in Christ is cast into the lake of fire. So the, the false prophet, the beast, Satan, all of his demons are cast into this lake. And then all the unbelievers, you can imagine swimming into in a lake of fire, having it totally encompass you and having all those demons and Satan all in there thrashing around. It's not a pretty picture, but that is the picture. Revelation 21, 8 says, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So second death is John's term to describe the ultimate end of all the wicked. You are born once physically, and if you are not born again spiritually, like Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John 3, you will end up experiencing the second death, which is the lake of fire. Now, these are the most common synonyms for hell, but it's not... The Bible doesn't just use these synonyms, it also uses indirect references. For instance, when you look... For instance, at our text in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 9, it says, you, if you deny Christ, you will be denied before the angels of God. That is an indirect reference to hell, right? You'll, you'll be denied before God and end up in hell. 
Three times in Matthew 8, 12 and 22, 13 and 25, 30, Jesus describes the wicked as being cast into outer darkness, an indirect reference to hell. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Perish is an indirect reference to hell. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of a salvation? Escape what? Hell. How can we escape the eternal fires of hell if we neglect the free gift of salvation which Jesus Christ offers? That's what he's saying. An implied answer is we cannot escape. But more common than all of these terms, think about it. What is the most common indirect reference to hell in all the Bible? There's so many synonyms for this and inferences for this that I can't even mention them all right now. It's the word saved. And salvation. Think about that. Saved from what? Hell. Hell. I mean, isn't this amazing how we can talk about, hey, are you saved? Or when did you get saved? Or how did you come to Christ? We use this term all the time. But we don't use what we're saved from. We're saved from hell. The word means to be saved, delivered, or rescued. People who need rescued are people who are hanging on the cliff, you know, by their fingernails. They're, they're getting weak, and they're about ready to drop, and somebody needs to come and save them and rescue them. Well, we need to be saved and rescued from hell. I'm going to give you some homework. Just do this for the next couple weeks. This is Calvary Bible Church homework. Don't use the word saved or salvation unless you also describe what we're saved from. So if you come up to somebody and say, hey, so when were you saved ad from hell? <laughs> or are you saved from the wrath of God? Or are you saved from unquenchable fire? Or are you saved from the lake of fire? You know, when did you get saved from the lake of fire? <laughs> that is accurate. Or maybe we should just avoid using the term saved at all and use delivered or rescued and then add what we're delivered and rescued from. Have you been rescued from hell? Have you been delivered from the wrath of God? Have you been delivered from the lake of fire by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Understand that being saved is not merely getting to go to heaven. Now that man has granted when you're saved, you get to go to heaven. But that's not what saved means. Saved implies peril. And that peril is hell. Eternal hellfire. And it just goes to show that we have lost the significance of the word salvation and its synonyms because we are ignorant of the doctrine of hell. That's why I'm preaching on it. You're not saved from the innocuous not being able to go to heaven. That's not what you're saved from. You're saved from hell. So we have explored some of the biblical reasons for studying and knowing the doctrine of hell. We have addressed excuses people and often give for not wanting to hear about hell and why those excuses are false. And third, we have looked at some of the synonyms for hell, which explain why we need to study the doctrine. So having the brush cleared away, Lord willing, next week, we will... Take a trip to hell as best as I can do. As scary as it might be, 
it's not going to be as scary as it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, when we look at your scriptures and we see this, we realize that I think many of us that we have been blind to the great emphasis on this doctrine in your word and how we neglect it for often selfish reasons. Father, we want to know about hell so that we can rejoice in your love and your grace and your mercy and compassion, which saves us from hell. We want to be able to rejoice in our salvation from the lake of fire. We want to be able to praise you because we have been delivered from the wrath to come. And Father, if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who's never turned to Christ and never placed their faith in his life, his death, his resurrection, they know they're not saved, they know they're headed for hell, I pray that right now in their hearts they would cry out to you and just say, Lord, save me. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for me and rose again. Save me because I cannot save myself. Forgive me because I cannot please you on my own. Father, I pray that that would be the prayer of some here today. And I pray for the rest of us that we would leave marveling in our salvation from eternal destruction. And that the next couple weeks we would work hard to remember to add those phrases on the end. That we would not shorten it and cheat ourselves of great praises and glorying to you. Father, we thank you for this morning. May your truth settle in our hearts and do us good for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.